This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Cardiac arrhythmias beyond atrial fibrillation. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. A galvanometer is a scientific instrument used to measure electrical current. A string galvanometer is a version of galvanometer used to measure small currents. It is comprised of a fine wire suspended in a strong magnetic field. Early galvanometers in the 1800s were used to transmit submarine cable telegraphs and were capable of transmitting signals transatlantically. In 1901, Willem Eindhoven used the string galvanometer technology to create a recording of the impulses of the heart, what we are now calling electrocardiogram or ECG. To capture an ECG, patients had to submerge their arms and left leg into buckets of saline, which was then used to conduct currents from the patient's skin to the string galvanometer. These three buckets, or points of contact, became what is now known as Eindhoven's Triangle. Eindhoven, for his efforts, received the Nobel Prize in 1924, and the string galvanometer became the technology behind ECGs that were used for decades to come. This innovation paved the way for physicians and physiologists to study heart arrhythmias. Earlier on this program, we learned about updates to atrial fibrillation. Today, we will be discussing other comic, common cardiac arrhythmias. To do so, I've invited one of Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center's cardiology experts. I am pleased to introduce electrophysiologist and professor of internal medicine, Dr. Mahmoud Hamzi. Mahmoud, welcome to MedNet. 
Thank you, Jing Jing. Actually, this is a very important uh, topic to talk about, as mm -hmm. you mentioned, and uh, uh, I'm very happy to uh, communicate with our practitioner to update them on what's important and what's new about management of this arrhythmia beyond the, uh, the atrial fibrillation. Perfect. Now, Mahmoud, I know ECGs are still very central in the diagnosis of heart arrhythmias, but what other tests are helpful to help us um, figure out what's going on with the patient? In patients with uh, arrhythmia in general, usually they do have a symptom of palpitation and they still have a symptom of other cardiac associated symptoms. But what you do, it depends on that symptom. You can use what's called cardiac monitoring from 24 hour Holter monitor, seven days cardiac monitor up to. Uh, after a month, up to a month, mm -hmm. depend on the symptoms. Okay. So this is very crucial to do beside the ECG. Okay, perfect. Now, for our viewers, please check our website out at go.osu.edu slash mednet21. <coughs> you can find all 120 of our webcasts there along with the slides and instructions to receive your CME credit or ABIM MOC points. You can also listen to our programs by podcasts. Just search for OSU MedNet21 on your podcast app. If you have any questions about today's program, please send them to us using the Ask a Question feature on the bottom of the webcast. Now let's get started. Mahmoud? Thank you, Jing Jing. Again, uh, again, the cardiac arrhythmia beyond atrial fibrillation is as important as recognizing atrial fibrillation. We don't want to focus on atrial fibrillation. Some of my slides will show some atrial fibrillation as part of the understanding of arrhythmia in general. But I'm not hoping, what I'm hoping at the end of this uh, presentation that we do understand what the basic and complement to Eindhoven uh, work uh, and how easier and simpler now we can uh, assist the arrhythmia by looking at the ECGs. Then uh, dive through the arrhythmia and including wide complex tachycardia, focusing on ventricular ectopic beats has been much more frequent recently. We've seen a lot in our practice as well as ventricular tachyarrhythmia and then deal with the narrow QRS tachycardia, either wide and uh, near QRS tachycardia. In general, we are going to focus about how we do that practically. So it's going to be how you encounter the patient, take in history, and also um, implement the workup, initial workup, simpler workup, maybe get the diagnosis, uh, and then uh, implement management or need more further evaluation and referral. So we'll start first with the basic understanding about really the ECG tracing with the heart contraction. So the impulse uh, started with the sinus node, uh, uh, which is located in the right upper corner uh, uh, of the right atrium uh, and the junction of the SVC. And the electric impulse started there and conduct through the, both atria and should not take more than 0.1 second. And that usually what is the duration of the P wave. So we can look at the P wave on the right diagram, which is really the contraction of the atria and the conduction through the atrium. If it's more than 0.1, it indicates some kind of pathology. So if it's more than 200 milliseconds, it might imply also left atrial enlargement, uh, but it should be about 0.1. Then we look at uh, the PR interval, which is conduction from uh, the sinus node to AV node and should not be uh, more than 0.2 seconds. If it's longer than 0.2 seconds, imply also uh, an AV node in disease or prolongation of the AV node disease could be related to medicine or other condition. Uh, the most important thing also looking at the ECG is when the contraction happened up from the uh, right atrium, which is number three on the right uh, uh, figure, it creates the P wave. Then the conduction goes through the AV node, which have a delay on the impulse, will give you the PR interval which is, uh, goes in uh, 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 figure three, uh, number three on the figure on the right side. Uh, QRS uh, uh, 
complex is really a very important one to pay attention to. It tells us about the normal conduction of the um, uh, system below the avian, which is called his system, which imply uh, right and left bundle, and should be narrow and should not be more than 0.1 second. Why this is important? Because if you know uh, upfront that patient has one of this bundle arm network and you could have YQRS tachycardia, YQRS, and then if you have a tachycardia, it could be really just benign tachycardia related to sinus tachycardia or atrial tachycardia. Now, all of us, we've seen this kind of ECGs, and most of the ECGs had automatic, uh, automatic uh, reading you know, and evaluation until confirmed by an uh, electrophysiologist. But uh, this is a normal ECGs, and usually what you'll see, you'll see this P wave uh, upright and lead one, two, three AVF. If you see it upright, that means it's coming from right upper corner of the atrium, and that's normal. The heart rate should be 60 to 100 beat per So this is normal. ECG, watch the, the, the PR is not prolonged, the P wave is like uh, about like uh, 0.1 uh, or less, and uh, the QRS is narrow, and that tells you that right and left bundle are involved with this. When we classify the tachycardia in general, we can classify them on this uh, um, figure like according to regularity or the width of QRS. So either from uh, right, left side, regular could be narrow QRS or wide, or you can go across, you're gonna see regular or irregular uh, near on the top or um, regular or irregular wide and, and the um, bottom of the uh, figure. And most of the irregularity usually happen, either you have atrial fibrillation or you have uh, PACs or you have multifocal tachycardia. Again, we'll mention some of this uh, abnormality at the end of the presentation, but we'll focus mainly on really regular tachycardia with wide complex or near complex. In general, if patient uh, present with uh, supraventricular tachycardia or any tachycardia, wide or near QRS, it's essential to see how stable the patient. If the patient is stable, you know, you can do some maneuver we'll, 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 we'll mention in a uh, later slide, but in general, if patient is unstable, especially in the emergency uh, situation and you have uh, an emergency visit, if, if the tachycardia more than 150 beats per minute and blood pressure less than 90, or the patient has symptoms regardless of the other vital, the patient has some impairment of consciousness, chest discomfort, short of breath, decomposite heart failure, he's really unstable and he's not tolerating this kind of tachycardia for whatever condition he has. He might have heart failure to start with and his reserve of the heart is not that uh, optimal. So any kind of tachycardia, put him in that situation. At that time, it's important to recognize that patient could be cardioverted to restore sinus rhythm. Uh, two, two, two things about the cardioversion. Any cardioversion, any rhythm should be synchronized. So on the um, cardioversion system, there's a button that's called synchronized, has to be um, activated, and you see blinking light, or you see stars or triangle on the QRS. And the reason we do that, we, we want to cardiovert patient and avoid shock in, on T, because if you shock on T, you could induce ventricular fibrillation. So all of them except ventricular fibrillation, you can cardiovert without synchronization. Now let's uh, jump to uh, YQRS tachycardia. And YQRS tachycardia, if we try to simplify that, this is really an eloquent study from um, the Pediatric and Congenital Heart Disease uh, 2022, uh, which is really, you know, I, I tried to figure out how we can look, and this is the most uh, concise picture I found. You know, I will start from right lower bottom, which is uh, usually common to see in our pacer clinics. So pacemaker mediated tachycardia. The pacemaker actually, uh, as we know, we put two leads, one in the right upper chamber and one in the right uh, lower chamber. 
which is mainly where the conduction system is, in case of you have sinus node dysfunction or AV node dys dysfunction. But if the patient has a retrograde conduction from the ventricle to the atrium, has a robust pacemaker conduction, he could actually create a circuit. You can see it on this diagram on the right lower uh, view of the picture that the impulse goes down to the right ventricle through the right ventricular pacemaker lead up through the septum to the AV node back to the, um, the pulse generator down to uh, the right uh, ventricular lead again. Uh, so this is usually uh, it's uh, easy to, to recognize because you can see an impulse and like a, uh, before each curve, you see like a, a, a vertical line. When you see that vertical line and you see it at the heart rate, usually at the upper rate of pacemaker. So a patient program pacemaker from 60 to 120 and you see a heart rate at 120 and you see a spike before QRS and P wave after that, that usually pacemaker mediate decor. This is an easy fix. We reprogram the device and make the device not to conduct through that um, uh, uh, arm from bottom, from right ventricle to the right atrium. So that easy fix, but again, to recognize it, it's upper normal rate, usually 120, 130, and you see a spike before uh, the um, uh, the QRS. The second one is important, and pay attention to it, is uh, uh, the um, really what we call a baseline uh, um, uh, bundle, right bundle. If we notice when we talk about the conduction system, here on the left side you see the patient at baseline has a right bundle branch block. And in the right upper corner on A tracing, this patient at baseline with sinus rhythm and sinus arrhythmia and has YQRS, and this is right bundle. Now, if somebody show me the, uh, the tracing on B, and I say, okay, this white complex tachycardia, and start saying, hmm, what does this could be? You know, it looks irregular, regular sometimes. This could be AFib, could be atrial tachycardia, could be ventricular tachycardia. But if somebody said, uh, two, two months ago, I have this ECG, and I go, okay, great, and this is most likely supraventricular tachycardia, conducting down to the um, ventricle through the left bundle because he has right bundle. And is depicted on the left side, if you see the, the circle on the left atrium, this is focal atrial tachycardia, uh, suppressing the sinus node and going down to the atrium. Now, knowing this, it makes the decision and the urgency of treatment different. So if I know a patient has right bundle, then I can treat him with medical therapy, I can have more evaluation, but if this that determined to be uh, ventricular tachycardia, then urgent treatment has to be implemented. There's other thing that's really interesting here. Sometimes we see it sometimes. The patient comes in and he has, on the monitor all the time we see it, and we get the, this alert from the cardiac monitor, patient has ventricular tachycardia, wide QRS tachycardia, and suddenly it goes from wide to narrow. And usually we call this rate-dependent um, bundle branch block. Now, we have to go back to path and the physiology of the bundle, right bundle and left bundle. Right bundle, in general, take longer time to recover. So if the heart rate goes faster beyond specific rate in specific condition, you know, and persons, the right bundle could block. And you see it on the tracing on the low on the lower of the uh, of the uh, figure here, that on the left side we have this white complex tachycardia, then suddenly it goes back to neurocurious. A couple of things you have to keep in attention. If you have ventricular tachyarrhythmia and stopped, you should have some called pause, compensatory compensatory pause. You don't have compensatory pause here. What you have, you have a change in the rate. And when the rate become much more suitable to the right bundle to conduct, 
guess what? Now we have two, two, two bundles are conducting and we have no QRS. So this not ventricular tachycardia, it's again something we have to keep in mind. One thing, pay attention to it, but when the transition from white complex tachycardia to near QRS um, tachycardia, there is no pauses. Because if you have ventricular tachycardia, you should have pauses when, when the ventricular tachycardia stops and reset your ventricular tachycardia. And then again, when I see this, I say, oh, most likely this is supraventricular tachycardia. We can treat it and it doesn't have to be urgently addressed. Um, this is really a rare condition, but we see it sometimes. So when we have, when a patient has Wolf-Parkinson-White, and what does mean? We'll talk about that later on. That patient has an excess pathway uh, around the AV canal, which is usually on the left side. You see, but you can see it any side of the AV canal. And what it does, you have conduction through the AV node as well as through the excess pathway. And when you have atrial fibrillation, atrial fibrillation will conduct both through both of them. And if you see where is the red arrow showing that you have this kind of curvy linear uh, uh, wave we call delta wave, make you suspicious of uh, access pathway. So it's interesting if you have an old ECG to see if the patient have Wolf Parkinson White, it will be important on treating patient patient like this because this is fast heart rate. And if this patient is in emergency room, should not should be treated differently. And we'll come to we'll come to this uh, treatment later on in the uh, program. This is essentially important. And I look at this left side, I have four uh, ECGs, uh, two on the left, two on the right, and I will tell you from get-go, like the left side is VT and the right side is supraventricular cardiac bundle branch block. But how we know that? There are multiple algorithm has been published over years to try to sort of, is it ventricular tachycardia or supraventricular tachycardia bundle branch block? And really it comes to one thing in my practice and our uh, approach to the patient. If patient, and I would say this, regardless of the algorithm, patient has structural heart disease and patient has low ejection fractional ventricle, any white complex tachycardia should be treated as ventricular tachycardia, regardless what the algorithm said. Because most of the algorithm, they are not, they are specific, but not their sensitive. So, Burgada algorithm is really uh, one of the important uh, one we use a lot. And there are four steps. The first one at the top, you see that if patient has a fusion or capture beat. So think about it for a second. You have a tachycardia in the ventricle. The atrium is not having any involvement with that. Could you have uh, a PACs or sinus beat go through the AV, AV node and capture the ventricle? That's called capture beat. Or if that beat fuse with the um, QRS of VT. That and that's a sign of ventricular tachycardia. Uh, if not, then uh, you look at uh, the, um, the, the R wave. Do you have R wave and precorded lead? If you have no R wave and recorded lead from V1 to V6, or you have what's called concordance. So let's look at the left upper uh, ECGs. You see from V1, V2, V3, V5, V6 in the upper and lower. One looks like QS negative, the other one's called R positive. So we have concordance of all V precorded uh, lead that's ventricular tachycardia. If not, then you have uh, um, uh, supraventricular tachycardia. The other thing, the timing of uh, the initial QRS to a nadir of the S wave is more than two and a half small square. Each square is about 40 milliseconds. So if you have more than 100 milliseconds and you have a notch, if you see the arrow on the left upper uh, ECG, 
there is a notch there. And what it indicates that is not conducting through the fast conduction system, which was either right or left bundle or both. You know, what it does, you have notch. So it's slow conduction, and that usually is ventricular tachycardia. Um, now, in, in, the, in the lower, uh, in, in the center of this uh, uh, figure, you have this uh, four boxes of the red, uh, the yellow, uh, actually, a square on the bottom. And you see, and the, and the first one is the notch we talk about, and that tells you the delay conduction, that more ventricular tachycardia. And if you see the, um, uh, the same changes in V1, V2 is seen on v, uh, in V6, that means it's ventricular tachycardia. So the take-home message, if you have concordance of the same uh, configuration of V1, the same like in V6, wide QRS, notch in the uh, downslope or upper uh, um, uh, wave of the right bundle, and, and delayed more than 100 milliseconds, this is most likely ventricular tachycardia. I put an arrow on the right uh, side, in the right upper corner, to see that this, the, um, the RS is so steep and less than 100 milliseconds, and that will, will concord with uh, supraventricular tachycardia with left bundle branch block, and the one underneath it is supraventricular tachycardia with right bundle branch block. But again, the take home message, if you have any patient with white complex tachycardia, has structural heart disease, treat him as if he has ventricular tachyarrhythmia, then apply the other, you know, configuration or other um, uh, algorithm. Let's focus on this common uh, entity we see all the time, something called premature ventricular contraction. We've been seeing a lot of this uh, in recent days. And what we notice uh, usually that the PVC in general, that is, it's, it's, it's abnormal beat compared to the sinus speed, doesn't, doesn't proceed with a P wave, and uh, it has a bizarre white QRS. Now we call it monomorphic VT if you have the ECG shown same configuration, same morphology of PVC. It's called, sometimes you call, you call it monomorphic or uh, unifocal, or sometimes you have multiple uh, morphology. Uh, and that is important to know because uh, unifocal PVC, that means it's coming in one spot. If you have multifocal PVC, you start thinking, of, or polymorphic uh, PVCs, you start thinking about maybe more myocardial disease, more involvement of multi-site of the, of the myocardial disease, including coronary disease. Bigeminy, trigeminy, quadrigeminy, it depends on how frequent it comes. Every other beat called bigeminy, every, every third beat called trigeminy, uh, every fourth beat we call it uh, uh, quadrigeminy. Now, if the PVCs become really lining up back to back and less than 30 seconds, we call not sustained ventricular tachycardia. If it's more than 30 seconds, we call also sustained ventricular tachycardia. But it could have, it could be also sustained less than 30 seconds if you have hemodynamic instability. Here's an example of uh, an ECG, and you can see uh, on this ECG, it was called the ventricular bigeminy. So you can see the uh, the beat that label Yn is a normal beat, which has uh, P wave before QRS and near QRS, and you have a T wave. Then you see the one next to it called PVCs. is coming earlier, wider uh, QRS, and no PVCs before. Actually, if you look closely, the P wave actually is on ST segment uh, um, uh, of the uh, lead 2. So you see it dipping on that ST segment. So this is a P wave conducted retrograde, so it went from ventricle to the um, to the uh, atria. So this is how PVC look like. And this is a patient of mine. Actually, it's interesting. This patient came to my office, uh, and we saw him recently, and has palpitation, and really we couldn't capture anything on her monitor uh, because she has this uh, palpitation uh, 
emitted over a month. And then we, we were able to um, capture PVCs. And what's interesting here, you see on the upper tracing that you have, again, uh, be it lo uh, labeled as N is normal beads, and then you have PVCs. And then we see non-sustainability. And if you look closely, the morphology is identical. So we know this PVC comes from fo one focus area. And that's important to know because could that, this could implement the management of patient. Now, the big question comes in, do I give this patient treatment? Do I do an initial evaluation? And then I, I tell patient, oh, don't worry about it, go home, we're gonna be fine. How we know it's benign, malignant, how concerning this? And really, I want everybody to pay attention to this because really, again, as I said, you know, structural heart disease. Do I have cardiomyopathy? Do I have low ventricular ejection fraction? Do I have history of, uh, uh, you know, um, myocardial disease or stent placement or of the coronary artery bypass? Anytime you see this one, that's a red flag immediately. If you don't, that's great. How symptomatic this? If this BBC has been seen when patient went uh, come for annual physical and incidentally notice the and patient has no symptom whatsoever or patient has symptom for each beat. You know, it doesn't matter how burden is it, but it's, it's there and it's affecting the quality of life of the patient. Severity of daily burden. This is really important, especially you, you hear that from patient come to you, say, oh, I have this, you know, palpitation all my life. But recently I have much more frequent PVCs and I have a lot of, you know, um, palpitation and affect my lifestyle, you know. So that also is important in the management of this patient. History, this is really crucial. History, this history applied to any arrhythmia. If patient has syncope, that red flag, you know, and you have to listen to the, what kind of syncope? If patient tell you like, well, anytime I'm, I'm not, I'm dehydrated and I feel sick in my stomach, queasy and sweaty and lay down and, and, and fall and then within second I recover, this is vasovagal syncope and it happened many times. But patient tell you like, I was doing nothing, never happened any problem and I was exercising a blackout, that red flag. Exertional syncope is red flag. This is cardiac until proven otherwise. Palpitation with near syncope. That means the heart is so fast, the cardiac is not really filling up the ventricle and you don't have perfusion to the brain. So patient become delirious, dizzy, near syncope. That's concerning. Patient has borderline heart failure, ejection fraction of 40%, and then he has fast heart rate. It decompensates the heart failure. That's another red flag. Chest pain, patient has um, uh, stent in the past, some blockage in the arteries of the heart, not, not significant, but has called demand ischemia. You hear that word all the time, that when the heart goes fast too much, it doesn't have time to have, uh, to have perfusion, because remember the heart reperfuses in the diastole, and if the diastole of the heart with relaxation is shortened, you get chest pain. That take advantage. You have to get uh, urgent attention to this patient. Progression of the symptoms, you know. Toxin, this patient has any kind of chemotherapy. Anthracycline uh, has caused cardiomyopathy a long time, you know, long, historically, but recently we have immunotherapy with uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitor causing myocarditis. So this is really crucial for all of us to do, you know. Family history, premature sudden cardiac arrest or cardiomyopathy, that red flag. A uh, couple of patients has, uh, say, oh, my, my uncle has ICD, my dad has ICD, that's red flag. You have to check him for that cardiomyopathy and see if you have genetic disorder, and also see if he has any history of uh, premature sudden cardiac death, like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or arrhythmogenic right, right ventricular dysplasia. This, I want to pay attention to it, because 
So ECG, look at this. If you have ECG with a two-wave morphology, please, please, please pay attention to this. If patient is older than 20 years old and has T-wave inversion in V1, V2, V3, and I'm saying if the lead were placed right and correct, that a red flag. You might have something in the right ventricle. Remember, the closest to the chest wall is the right ventricle. So if the T-wave is abnormal and patient never have heart disease or a stress test reason was negative, this could be an implication of right ventricular dysplasia. This is genetic disorder. If patient has no onset of bundle branch block and never have heart attack, this could, be, could imply a conduction disease disorder like myocarditis after immunotherapy or sarcoidosis. Patient has prior myocardial infarction could also give you an idea that could have scar-related scar-related uh, uh, <coughs> scar uh, um, uh, PVCs or ventric tachycardia. Now, PVC morphology could be right bundle, left bundle. Uh, this is really important to know because right bundle imp uh, imply the other ventricles. So right imply the contralateral ventricles, so left ventricular problem. So if you see PVCs uh, um, uh, looks right bundleish, you know, uh, like V1, V2, and you have the RR prime, that means there is some arrhythmia from left, left ventricle. That's concerning. Same thing with left bundle if it's coming from uh, upper, uh, uh, the free wall, could be concerning as well. So all this assessment evaluation help us and what we did here, history, family history, ECG, everything you can do in your office. And again, halter motor or cardiac motor depend on how frequent uh, patient has uh, the frequency of symptoms. But in general, if we look at the burden of 24-hour halt motor or average of cardiac motor, if it's more than 10,000 PVC, that's significant. Echocardiogram, it's also uh, need to be done to be sure that this, this PVC is not causing what's called PVC cardiomyopathy, right ventricular size is normal, the contraction or movement of the right ventricle is not is abnormal or not. Look at hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Look at the thickness of the symptoms. Look at the left ventricular hypertrophy without hypertension. You know, that red flag. Patient has LVH but no hypertension. That hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or Fabry disease. Uh, the ECG sometimes show you uh, voltage of QRS is a really uh, small and big P wave. That tell you like might be amyloid or Fabry disease. Now, if the initial evaluation will give you almost like 75% to 80% diagnosis, but if you still have more concern, any patient has PVC or not sustained ventricular tachycardia and never have ischemic evaluation, deserve an ischemic evaluation. Nuclear stress is essential. Look at if you have ischemia, acute ischemia, infarction, or have any abnormal uh, uh, perfusion defect, which require further testing like left heart catheterization or perfusion evaluation. If the stress tests come back negative, uh, especially if a patient has polymorphic ventricular tachycardia, cardiac MRI is essential. You know, it was really a uh, big concern with COVID-19 that we have myocarditis. Thank God it was not that high, but we were so alert about that. Could the COVID-19 give you myocarditis? Uh, could the immunotherapy give you myocarditis? So, yeah, KMR, uh, cardiac MRI is essentially important to uh, do because of high sensitivity to um, evaluate for infiltrative disease and also to tell us what pattern of disease is it patchy disease, uh, infiltrative disease, or other etiology. Cardiac PET, uh, if we are still concerning about myocarditis uh, after chemotherapy or immunotherapy or sarcoidosis, is a great test. Cardiac PET uh, need to be really prepped well and done really well under uh, the guidance uh, specifically uh, to be done to get the outcome 
right. If you are patient, if you are still concerned about uh, amyloid free light chain testing will be done. If you're concerned about hemochromatosis, ferritin evaluation and iron, genetic evaluation as said for diet cardiomyopathy ACE level, we use it sometimes also for cardiac sarcoidosis uh, to complete diagnosis. Therapy depend. Patient has no symptoms. Uh, echo is look normal. He has uh, infrequent PVC, really can do nothing. But, but you need to continue monitoring this patient. So I'll tell the patient, listen, you know, we have one per three percent uh, PVCs. The PVCs are concerning. Let's see you next year. Let's get another monitor. So keep surveillance and follow up with the patient. You know. Now, if next year goes up higher to ten percent, twenty percent, you know, then you have to implement. But if it stays the same, you can spread it out for a year or every year. But you have to do it. Antiarrhythmic medication is really uh, difficult sometimes to manage because uh, the patient have to understand that this medicine has to be taken all the time to suppress the uh, the medication like uh, sotolol or ticosin and other medication and need to be followed closely. Uh, ablation sometimes are really efficient if you have focal area uh, and uh, could, could also uh, complement it with uh, implantable defibrillator if patient has serious symptom like uh, exertion syncope with uh, genetic disorder. This is we need to pay attention to. PVC could PVC cause cardiomyopathy and again Really, uh, I gather a lot of data uh, from multiple studies and came up with this algorithm. Just pay attention to that. If patient has a lot of PVCs, now if you think how many heartbeat the heart produces a day, 80,000 to 100,000. So if you have 10,000 PVCs a day, that could be concerning. And the longer duration of PVC exposure, patient known to have PVC for years, these people have more tendency to have cardiomyopathy. Or patient has no symptom for years. I said, you know, I saw this patient in 2010, and now he's come back to me, and I'm going to do an echocardiogram. And his ejection fraction now is 40%. Well, there's some impact from these PVCs. The width of the PVCs, of the PVCs are wider, like 115 millisecond. That means it's coming from epicardial origin, and usually they cause cardiomyopathy. Interpolated uh, PVC. This is an interesting phenomenon. This PVC is actually, it you see that, I'll show a picture of that, it's between two normal PVCs and there is no compensatory uh, pause. They could cause cardiomyopathy. Lack of diurnal variation of PVC. What does it mean? If you look at the whole thermometer patient, like at night you have no PVCs, in the morning more PVCs. But if you see no changes, all PVCs exist all the time, that's a concerning. And somehow it's more dominant with male. Uh, gender. This patient actually was sent to, to my colleague, a um, 50-year-old guy, or the 50-year-old uh, gentleman with long history of benign PVC, for years and years and years and years. And suddenly he came in with a short of breath, fatigued to his physician, seen his uh, colleague and in, in the, did the echocardiogram at, at that clinic and they found the ejection fraction of 20%. And they started him on heart failure uh, medication, ACE inhibitor, beta blocker, curvedolol, uh, aldosterone antagonist, uh, aldactone. And uh, did the whole thermometer, and because they noticed PVCs on his ECG, and this is his ECG actually, when he went. So the, the black circle is the normal sinus speed, and the PVCs are really in by Gemini, and this is interpolated PVC. It sit between the two uh, uh, normal beat, and there's no compensatory, uh, um, no compensatory um, pause. And what you see also here, you see the QRS is white here. Uh, EF was 20% sent to us for uh, ICD. Well, we noticed that the patient has unifocal PVC. We took him to the electrophysiology lab, and we did the study, and this is the tracing from the electrophysiology lab, and you see in the bottom, it's called the ablation catheter sitting 
on the area of where is the PVC originated from. And when, once we start ablation, let's see the artifact and the lower tracing, that ablation is on and the PVC went away and abolished. This gentleman, after two months, his ejection fraction improved to 45%. And guess what? We save him from ICD. So understanding the pathophysiology and where the PVC come from is, is important. Um, with this, we'll, we'll dive to uh, neurocurious tachycardia. And neurocurious tachycardia, uh, it's more, uh, you know, most practitioners, they are more comfortable with it, but be careful also. This, uh, if your tachycardia continues too much, you might get also tachycardia induced cardiomyopathy and need to be addressed. So if you have neurocurious tachycardia, is it regular or irregular? So it's irregular, it's atrial fibrillation we talked about before, we're going to pass for now, and we're going to focus on just regular tachycardia. If you look at the ECGs and you don't see P wave, that means you go down all the way uh, to the AVNRT. If you see arrow going down from no down all the way uh, to AVNRT, this is commonly uh, uh, diagnosis called AV node intern tachycardia. If you see P wave, then the question, do we have more, a, more P wave than QRS wave? Is the atrial rate more or less? If you have more atrial, uh, uh, more P wave than QRS, that means atrial flutter or atrial tachycardia. Uh, but if you have one to one, so you have P wave to each QRS, then you look at the interval. If the RP, which is QRS to the P wave after that, less than two square, seven millisecond is APNRT. If it's more than seven millisecond, it could be anything else, including atypical APNRT. Um, well, let's start with this, this very interesting uh, 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 rhythm, and I will pay your attention to this, it's called atrial flutter, and has been called multiple names throughout my training, you know, it used to be called common atrial flutter, uh, counterclock atrial flutter, the way how direction of the flutter is a macro entrant circuit sitting in the right atrium, and usually you look at lead 2, 3 AVF, again, 2, 3 AVF. The flutter, which is labeled by F here on the on the uh, uh, slide, is negative. And if you compare that to V1, they are positive. So you do the opposite all the time. The opposite each other. Now, if you change, this is covered and this is counterclock. If you change the direction, it's going to be negative in uh, in lead one and V1 and positive in uh, two three AVF. It doesn't matter what you what you do with that. Uh, the, again, the treatment is the same. So it's re-entrant tachycardia, uh, it's in the right atrium. The heart rate really goes fast up to 300 beats per minute with 2 to 1 AV block. Um, and heart rate usually about 150 beats per minute. Uh, medical therapy is not successful. You're, you're going to have a problem with blood pressure, you try to slow the heart rate. And the best way is really to go ahead and do what's called ablation of the cable tricuspid dismiss. 96% people do well. Anticoagulation treatment should be addressed at least two months and follow-up monitor to see if the arrhythmia come back uh, to prevent from uh, uh, stroke. Neuro-QRS tachycardia, this is really the broad way to look at it. And there is two figures on the bottom, one on the left side and one on the right side. The left, one, left side is really what's called AV node dependent. So AV and RT use the AV node as part of the circuit, the small uh, uh, black circuit in the middle. Then also access pathway, it's called AV reentrant tachycardia. Use the access pathway through the AV node to complete the circuit. Now, on the right side, you have atrial tachycardia, which is a focus and a star. You see it on the uh, left atrium here on that depicted picture. So, which is a star, it's a focal atrial tachycardia or circuit the atrial flutter on the right atrium. 
it does not need the AV node, does not need the, the ventricle. So we do some maneuver to really inhibit or slow the conduction to AV node, either vagal maneuver called Valsalva maneuver or cough or apply ice pack onto the front of the face to increase the impulse of the vagal nerve to uh, terminate or slow the, uh, the AV node uh, activities or carotid massage or adenosine. Please, please, please do not do carotid sinus massage in your clinic. You should not do it if you don't have crash cards. So don't do it. Vagal maneuver is okay, but don't do carotid sinus massage in your office. Adenosine IV push, it uh, usually um, uh, uh, inhibit uh, the AV node and block it. So if you have AV node dependent on left side, it will terminate it. If you don't, it does not. And here an example of this. On the right side, we uh, either carotid sinus massage or adenosine. You see the fast heart rate on the right side stop and you have the sinus rhythm. On the left side, you apply all the stuff. Really what you see, you see more P wave and maintenance of the tachycardia. So because it's not AV node dependent. That's, this maneuver will give us an idea about that, what we're dealing with. This is a patient of mine we've seen uh, three months ago, a 34-year-old lady, has this palpitation for years and years and years. She really uh, described that it comes and goes, you know, and she had it when she was uh, uh, in high school. Um, and then uh, she saw this, every, every time she goes to her physician, oh, this is anxiety related. But guess what? This was documented and she has uh, fast heart rate, near QRS. I can see the P wave well. And what we said most likely is AVNRT. And this is our pathophysiology, path how we understand uh, AVNRT. It's re-entered circuit. So you have, on the left side, you have the atrium at the top, AVNRT in middle, and his. And what you see, you see the fast conduction coming from, with the blue line from the atrium to the right side of the, of the figure on the left side here, down to the ventricle. That, all of us, we have that. But these patients, they have this uh, uh, slow conduction uh, 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 arm and the left side. And we have to understand the slow conduction, that means slow con does conduct slowly but recover fast. The fast conduction, it conducts fast but recovers slow. So if you have in the, um, in the uh, second uh, figure from left, if you have a PAC, premature atrial beat, comes earlier and it conducts, the fast pathway is refractory, so it's going to go through the slow pathway. But if it tried to come back up and the slow pathway, fast pathway did not recover, it will not do anything. But if it come earlier more, so that's what we see on the third uh, figure from the left, then if it's recovered, it will conduct up and down and you see it like that would give you the uh, atrial tachycardia, so uh, the, the AVNRT uh, tachycardia. So we know from looking at this ECG, uh, from this diagram uh, and the ECG underneath that, this is re-entered tachycardia and we can handle this with different management and treatment. And here's an, uh, a patient uh, we have recently in our in office, uh, and you see it on the left side, this is a monitor, they have a sinus BC, P wave, P wave, and P wave, and PR is short, and that implied the fast pathway. Then you see the P wave come earlier, which is PACs, and it did not go through the fast pathway because it's, uh, you know, it's refractory. It went down through the slow pathway and came back up and initiated the tachycardia. So that will give you a sudden onset of tachycardia. So AVNRT is very common, 50-60% of the time we see the supraventric tachycardia. Femia is slightly higher, heart rate in 170. But as you see, my patient, I just showed it to you, it was 216. So the heart rate, it does not imply what tachycardia you're dealing with. You know, Really look at the P wave. You see it or you don't see it. And if you see it, it's shorter after the QRS, most likely AVNRT. 
treatment in your office, vagal maneuver. Do not do carotid sinus massage, please, except if you have crash cart. And medical therapy, beta blocker work very well, uh, cancer channel blocker, because they block the AV node. Uh, when, when I see a patient, I said, listen, this is not life-threatening. This can be treated with uh, beta blocker or cancer channel blocker, and it depends on the patient choice or ablation. We go in and ablate the slow pathway and break that circuit. So uh, most time, patients try the medicine. If it doesn't work, we'll do the ablation, and the successful ablation is highly successful, 96%. What Parkinson's one access pathway is the second common uh, substrate for tachycardia. There is a connection on, on the AV uh, groove. Here you see on the left free wall of the left uh, atrium and left ventricle with the white, with the yellow color. That means you have conduction through the access pathway and the Hesperkinja system. And both waves will, con will collide and give you what's called delta wave. And that will shorten the PR, long, uh, prolong the QRS. This is the ECG uh, of my patient. And when you look at this ECG, you can tell where it's coming from. And AVL is negative, so we know it's coming from the left side of the heart. So that will, if we decide to do an ablation, we know we're going to go left side and do an ablation. So ECG tell us where it's coming from. If it's negative, it's the location of the access pathway. The tachycardia is really two kinds of tachycardia. One going down the conduction system. Again, remember, if you go through the bundles, right left bundle is going to be narrow, and come back up to the atrium. That's called orthodromic AV re-entering tachycardia, AVRT. If it goes the other way, goes down the, uh, the, the ventricle. Remember, we talked about the uh, earlier about Y-complex tachycardia because go through slow conduction is going to get Y-complex tachycardia. So this could be also treatable. Uh, this is the case we talk about if you have excess pathway and you have um, a, a fib. The atrial fibrillation now is conducting through the AV node and the excess pathway. You have to be careful because the excess pathway, it's called all or none phenomena. What does it mean that it conducts all the time faster than AV node? AV node is slower, so you should not give any AV node slowing agent to this patient. Beta blocker, calcium channel blocker, digoxin, and adenosine. The reason of this, because it enhances the conduction over the excess pathway and results in ventricular fibrillation. So please, 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 if you see stuff like this, with where I put this red arrow with Pre-excitation. I've seen three or, four three or four times in my practice, but you should see it. Sometimes you could see it and young people. If you see this one, if patient is stable, give him sodium channel blocker, procainamide, it will break it. Then you see the excess pathway. If patient unstable, cardiovert. Do not use beta blocker, calcium channel blocker, digoxin, or adenosine. Uh, again, aviary uh, uh, tachycardia, either orthodromic or antidromic. Uh, the treatment independent uh, uh, acute therapy is vagal, carotid sinus massage, and addition. The reason? Because they use the AV node, so you can block the AV node and slow the conduction. If patient has no syncope and not interested in ablation, you will give them flecainide, propafenone, and procainamide. What, what are these? Sodium channel blocker, not made of blocker. Sodium channel blocker. But the problem with this, all this medicine, they are prorhythmic, uh, and they need regular ECG and lab testing. Uh, each, uh, the ablation is really successful, about 95%. If patient has syncope, that patient is going to go to the hospital, get the ablation, uh, and treat it acutely inpatient, and successful ablation will be done. Here's a patient on the upper tracing. You have the delta wave, and after ablation, delta wave is gone. So now the conduction going through the uh, Hesperkinja system, and you have neurocuris, and you don't have that curvilinear delta wave anymore. Focal atrial tachycardia is the third common tachycardia we deal with it. And this is really interesting to know. It's, if you see on the pictures here, there's a, where the, the red spot, this is a 
cells are triggered and has calcium handling in the cells and trigger activity and suppress the AV node. And usually they go really fast. They go from 150 to 250, and sometimes they conduct one-to-one -one at 150, but go faster, conduct two-to-one. This could be concerning. If patient has tachycardia, atrial tachycardia, could cause tachycardia and do mediate cardiomyopathy. Same like we have with PVC, so you have to pay attention to it. It's one-to-one -one AV, uh, AV conduction. Does not use the AV node. Usually you see it warm up and cool down, and the P wave usually um, morphology depends on where it's coming. Is it coming from upper? It's positive in 2-3 AV for negative. It depends on the form of It doesn't matter, but you have to manage this. The best treatment of this really is beta block, calcium drop blocker. Ablation is successful 86% or uh, antiritmic drug therapy. But we have, again, all this uh, has to present to the patient. If patient has cardiomyopathy, I give them antiritmic, uh, control the, heart, the, the, the um, arrhythmia control and heart function, then we'll do an ablation. This, this is a patient of mine. We can see on the monitor how the, the, um, uh, the upper uh, tracing is the sinusoidal, and you have number six, six, 660. This is the interval in millisecond, and you see the one underneath is called the warm-up, how the heart rate went faster, and that usually focal tachycardia goes faster. So I know I'm dealing with the focal area here and help me to manage the patient when if, I, if, if the ablation is implemented. Uh, Inappropriate sinus tachycardia, very, very uh, common. We've seen that a lot after COVID-19. We see POTS syndrome-like, and pay attention to this. If patient does minimal activities, minimal activity, and his heart rate goes above 100, that's really uncommon and unusual uh, to see in normal heart and normal sinus node function. Uh, but you have to rule out uh, secondary uh, causes like uh, sinus tachycardia, anemia, pain, uh, dehydration, electro electrolyte imbalance, and other stuff, you know, and be sure they're not dealing even, even with uh, hyperthyroidism or pheochromocytoma. So you have to really do good workup to say science tachycardia is, uh, rule out is inappropriate science tachycardia. And you also you have to rule out POTS. And how you, what POTS is when patients stand up, his heart rate goes up by 20 beats per minute, and then blood pressure doesn't change. Treatment of choice for inappropriate science tachycardia, again, beta blocker, calcium trauma blocker, or what's called funny current blocker, Evabradine, and this medicine does not affect the AV, uh, the, um, the blood pressure, or sometimes we do sinus node modification and ablation. Last not least here, multifocal atrial tachycardia. Uh, it's something that's really important to understand. Look at the tracing here. Sometimes the ECG will read this as atrial fibrillation, and what we do most time, uh, without reviewing it carefully, we might put patient on anticoagulation, and this is not atrial fibrillation. You see the arrow? This is multiple PVC morphology and different morphology, and they have a different PR. This is multi-atrial tachycardia. They do not have to be on, uh, uh, on anticoagulation. And what you do usually, you see that in lung disease, COPD, asthma, electrolyte imbalance, very common to cause this. So optimize serum potassium above four, serum magnesium above two, beta blocker, cancer provoker is effective. They do not need cardioversion. So pay attention to this, this condition, usually in lung disease. So in conclusion, cardiac arrhythmia, demand and investigation, and long-term uh, uh, follow-up as well as observation. Based on history, ECG, Holter monitor, ECHO are often established, uh, will if, if enough to establish the diagnosis, treatment determined on the symptom and how the heart structure, if it's involved or not. But again, if you decide to observe the patient, please do not forget to observe.
Perfect. That was wonderful. Um, that was so helpful. I know you went through a lot of material in a very short period of time. So thank you so much for putting that together. Now, I do have some questions, um, especially surrounding PVCs, since those are very common. Uh, do you recommend getting Holter Monitor on every patient who has PVCs or only if you think that they might have a higher symptom burden or one of those risk factors you mentioned, such as higher symptom burden or higher number of PVCs or longer duration of PVCs, et cetera? That's really a good question. Uh, and usually what we do, um, and depend on the presentation, as you said, if a patient comes in and really have a lot of symptoms or have a lot of uh, uh, other condition affected like uh, uh, hardware symptoms, uh, then definitely will do a uh, uh, cardiac monitor. Uh, in my practice, I, I like to do more than one day. Mm -hmm. uh, give me an average. So I do seven days uh, cardiac monitor or uh, mobile cardiac monitor to assist the average burden. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is there, you know, let's say you get a Holter monitor and there's maybe um, a small number of PVCs, just a few hundred. Is that something you then need to follow up with another one the next year or only if it's higher than that? Definitely, what, what we suggest all the time, we suggest to the patient that we need to get uh, um, more evaluation and uh, it depends on the symptoms. But I have a tendency in my practice to see the patient again in one year and talk to the patient about it. Uh, now. It depends on the patient. Some patients, they really underestimate their symptoms. Some people, mm -hmm. they do, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, we usually, if you have patient has PVCs and seen once we do another PVCs evaluation in a year, usually Holter monitor or three days or seven days mobile cardiometry. And they look the same or improve, and then we'll space it out and tell the patient, just let us know when you have it. Mm -hmm. Now, how, how important is caffeine? with uh, or caffeine avoidance in patients with tachyarrhythmias. I hear that a lot, you know, you know decrease the, if you're having palpitations, decrease caffeine. Um, does that actually cause PVCs or cause tachyarrhythmias? Absolutely, that's a great question and very common question and it's, it, it's, it has a merit to it. Uh, caffeine actually has uh, 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 noticed to increase the catecholamine uh, uh, release and it's actually, it trigger the PVCs, so mm -hmm. especially in patients who has normal structural heart disease. So caffeine could cause this, especially caffeinated beverages. So people, mm -hmm. they have to be clear about that. So patient, do you drink caffeinated beverages? And specifically, do you drink specific nine? And people, people sometimes they enter caffeine is just a coffee, mm -hmm. but we have to specify that. The other misconception also is not caffeine and uh, decaffeinated. Decaffeinated coffee has still have a lot of ca caffeine in it. Mm -hmm. So definitely I tell our patient has to uh, abstain from caffeine. The other uh, behavior uh, people has to understand also is alcohol. Mm -hmm. Alcohol is known to also to have a direct effect on the uh, myocardium as well as a direct effect on the um, uh, electrolyte imbalance. Uh, it affects the potassium and magnesium levels. So, and, 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 and the rule of thumb for in my patient that no alcohol drink more than two a week mm -hmm. and no more than one to two drink of caffeine a day. Perfect. Okay, that's very helpful to counsel patients. Um, now, you mentioned there can be other causes of tachyarrhythmia, such as hyperthyroidism or um, cardiomyopathy, amyloidosis. How often do you need to check for those things or, you know, do additional testing beyond the cardiac um, testing, but do things like lab work or, uh, or whatnot? That's a very good question as well. You know, in, in general, we said it, thyroid is, I have low threshold to check thyroid disorder in any tachyarrhythmia because it's common, you know, mm -hmm. common disease, you see it all the time. 
Um, the, easy, the good news about uh, the other uncommon uh, uh, inherited disease, you know, the, you can see it on the ECGs. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. really can see um, the amyloidosis. The QRS is really narrow, and you see this patient like, why has uh, uh, low amplitude QRS in his limb lead, and he is not, you know, chested his average chest uh, structure? That will ring a bell. Or you have LVH, huge mm -hmm. LVH, and patient never have. Uh, you know, hypertension, that cardiomyopathy, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, mm -hmm. um, or no lip bundle. When you see mm -hmm. any new conduction disorders, be careful about that, you know, mm -hmm. it could be. Now, we didn't talk about this today, but in bradyarrhythmia, you have to be careful about Lyme disease, sometimes give you AV notes. So mm -hmm. other stuff has to be in contest, you know. So looking at the ECGs, you discover that, you know, mm -hmm. and also looking at new changes in conduction. Perfect. So the ECG is the key here. For that. Okay. Now one last question. Now some communities don't have easy access to a specialist, specialist electrophysiologist like yourself. Um, what are some of the key arrhythmias that you want to send immediately to an electrophysiologist versus something a primary care doctor or a general cardiologist could that's, manage? That's a really good question and we, we get the, this question uh, from our um, uh, referring physician uh, frequently. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, uh, we understand primary care physicians deal with other conditions and sometimes come to the point need some help and I'm hoping this presentation will, will help, you mm -hmm. know. Definitely. And to uh, give outline about what we can do. But any patient has uh, exertional syncope. Mm -hmm. Any patient has uh, uh, significant symptoms like pre-syncope, lightheadedness, uh, and uh, pre-excitation and mm -hmm. abnormal ECGs. Um, uh, this patient needs to be referred to tertiary care center uh, uh, across uh, the, the nation. Now they have out, outreach uh, offices. And, uh, and sometimes also a uh, patient, we've been doing that also um, uh, uh, like a uh, remote uh, monitoring, you know, mm -hmm. or remote uh, uh, telemedicine has mm -hmm. been uh, mm -hmm. done yes. also uh, and it's available at major institution, any institution that also will ease up the um, the uh, uh, referral to the to the um, uh, expertise in this field. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Thank you so much um, for all of that. Now we're going to finish up today's program with a final key point, Mahmoud. So uh, the uh, supraventricular tachycardia or white complex tachycardia, as we stated, you know, they are really need a lot of uh, attention and evaluation, and. Uh, uh, the simple evaluation, really 85% of the time, just getting a good history and looking at the ECGs and getting an echocardiogram will be, uh, we get the diagnosis and the appropriate management. If whatsoever, if you have a patient who have been treated or you have, uh, you've seen abnormalities on the ECGs or echocardiogram, uh, do not hesitate to uh, contact the referral uh, refer to expertise uh, facility, uh, expertise uh, in this field in um, uh, facility next to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us today. Our, for our audience, you can receive CME credit for watching by logging onto our website at ccme.osu.edu and taking the post-test. Join us again next week with my guest doctors Kevin Weber and Anna Verdesia to learn about advances in migraine and other headache syndromes. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.